The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> well, I notice when Marie mentions teacher, I feel a little defensive about being in that position. Um, I am a retired psychotherapist, and I do facilitate these support groups, and that's where I feel... Uh, is everybody hearing this okay? That's where I feel uh, comfortable, and maybe I've got something to offer. Uh, it's, we'll, we'll decide afterwards, or I'll decide whether uh, this was a good venture. Um, as I have uh, facilitated the uh, support group for the people with life-threatening illness, I have uh, every week gathered some what I call reflective material, hopefully informative, hopefully inspirational for the people in the group. And I send it out in an email um, several days before our meeting. We don't necessarily focus on that material, but over the last year and a half, I've collected a good deal of it. And when I was asked to give a talk, I thought the most logical thing for me to do was to review that, which was all material that I really enjoyed uh, when I was going uh, through it. And so I thought I would put together a, a talk with a lot of weighty um, writers, uh, mostly Buddhist. And um, that's what I originally did. But my attention kept draw being drawn back to Stephen Levine, uh, who some of you have probably heard of. There was recently a um, uh, happening up at uh, Spirit Rock, I think it was on the 14th of this month, to raise money for he and his wife, who now find themselves without much financial resources at all in the latter part of their life, because frankly, they have given away. I was told on good authority at one time that they gave away their house once when they were uh, running a suicide prevention uh, organization, and it simply ran short of money. So they have been wonderful teachers for some 40 years in the uh, Buddhist circles. And um, uh, Stephen is essentially a poet and also a Buddhist meditation teacher. And for 30 years, he and his wife did hospice work, work with people who were dying. And out of those experiences, he developed some models of how to prepare for death, and uh, I just find them very intriguing. One reason, because they are really applicable to a 20-year-old as much as a person in their deathbed, um, although I don't know how many 20-year-olds would take it on seriously. Um, also, um, I want to say that this is only a brief outline of what Stephen Levine has to say. He's written something like a dozen books, and uh, not all of them pertain to this material, but uh, there's a lot more techniques that he suggests and outlines like guided meditations that I'm not saying anything about. So when he talks about preparing for death, he, he says the best way to do that is to become fully alive. In fact, he says the optimum preparation for death is a wholehearted opening to life. Now the question is, what is he talking about by life? We ordinarily think of life as involving the people we know, our family, the places we've gone, the things we've done, our accomplishments, and so on. But he's not really talking about that. What he focuses on say that that's not life, but uh, there's another much more important aspect of life that we tend to not give attention to or conscious attention to. And um, let me just quote him. What we describe as our life is not the sum total of what has passed through our hands, but also what has passed through our minds. Our life isn't only a collection of people and places. It is also a continuum of the ever-changing feelings and states of mind they engender. So it's the inner life that we tend not to pay attention to that he's trying to draw our attention to and says, this is the way to really fully step into life. He also says, to know your life is to know intimately what you are feeling, or to put it another way, to be aware of what state of mind predominates in consciousness. 
This allows us to be more fully alive to the present rather than living our life as an afterthought. So, um, one more quote, and I'll get away from the quotes for a minute. I hate it when people give me a whole string of quotes. Very hard to follow, usually. I hope I'm doing it with a cadence that you can follow. Um, So he says, let's focus on what's going on in the moment, and let's look at what's happening inside us, in our mind, in our bodies. Our intention, he says, when we're working with people in hospice, is not to keep people alive or help them die. Our work seems to be an encouragement to focus on the moment. If the moment holds pain, awareness is brought to pain. If the moment holds grief, then grief is the focus. If the moment holds illness, then illness is the teaching to which awareness is directed. And you notice he talks about is the teacher. You know, what is going on is what is there to teach us also. He uses a uh, technique and teaches a technique regularly called noting. Now, some of you undoubtedly here know, know of this already. It's sometimes called labeling. It's something that I learned in the very beginning of my meditation practice and until late last year regarded it as simply a beginner's practice. But Gil told me on a retreat last September that he actually used noting or labeling right through the most advanced practices that he went through. So and he used it for years regularly. So I no longer regarded it as a, a beginner's practice and took it up again. In fact, most of my interviews with Gail on that two-week retreat were all about noting and labeling. Now, for those of you that aren't acquainted with it, it's simply a matter of very gently using a word, usually subvocally, or it could be done out loud, for whatever action you're taking in the moment or what you're experiencing in the moment. So in walking meditation, it's usually a noting process of lifting, moving the foot forward, placing the foot down again. And noting is, well, usually used in um, uh, walking meditation. Um, The noting usually helps us, one, stay in the moment. Uh, You'll notice that if you can really resist going into a story, like if I'm noting here sounds and I hear a car go by, if I'm really doing the noting practice as I want to, I'm simply saying hearing. But almost invariably, I won't just say hearing and leave it at that. I'm speculating. I'm even picturing a car, a truck, a motorcycle. I'm going into the conceptual mind and making a story about what's going on. And the noting, most people find, will help them simply stay in the moment and not go go into that kind of story. It also um, helps us to respond rather than react. Um, Sitting in meditation, it happened again tonight, it happens almost every meditation, an itch. Well, ordinarily, if I'm not conscious, not noting, I will unconsciously, it, it happened in my eyebrow tonight, and right down here in my beard. And if I'm not noting consciously, you know, I flick it. From, from Levine's standpoint, I've lost that part of my life. Now, not a big, important part of my life, but I'm a little less conscious. And so the noting process helps us, instead of react, the automatic unconscious, get rid of that itch, um, helps us respond by letting me explore it. I noticed one tonight in my beard sort of moved around a little bit, radiated a little bit. And uh, part of my life, part of the life we usually ignore. Um, Can also help us investigate, like I just mentioned, um, what else is going on with that that little itch intensifying, um, 
subsiding. I do know that some years ago I made a real practice of not responding to itches. And it took about a year and a half, usually facial, or somewhere in my body during meditation. And after about a year and a half of really being good in that practice, I didn't notice any more itches for some time until I got a little more relaxed about the thing. But it probably was two, two more years I didn't experience it. Now, the point of not responding to an itch is not so you won't ever experience it in here. I was sort of surprised that happened. But it's to stay in your life consciously. I'd like to take just one minute, and I'll watch my watch, and ask you to just note sounds. How many sounds do you note in a 60-second period? Now, supposedly we're in a completely quiet environment in here, but I think that if you really pay attention just to hearing and count, I'd like to see at the end how many things we count. I don't hear a lot of traffic outside right now, as I did during the meditation, but I'd like to see how many. So let's let's start. To, first of all, does everybody understand what I'm saying about this, this noting, this for what we're going to do right now, hearing? Okay, great. So, oh, I'm sorry, question? Uh, Yeah, why don't you repeat the question for the people out there? Sure. Um, If you say for hearing something like a motorcycle, you don't want to label motorcycle. You want to say hearing. If you have an itch, what's what's the label for that feeling? No, I would I would actually just call that itch, and then the other things that almost invariably go with it. It moves, it radiates, it you know has various aspects to it, which I would loosely call investigation. But that can also be done with the um, with the labeling or with the um, noting. Yeah, the, the thing is, obviously, the big danger of noting is that it takes us into our conceptual mind. It is a conceptual process. But done seriously, Gill has always told me, um, the risk of conceptualizing is very minimal and is, it's more benefit against cognizing than it is really a risk if you Stay conscious. So I certainly acknowledge it's a cognitive process, but if it is, that's why just one word is used. You never want to get into a description of three or four words. Then you're really often running conceptually. Yeah. So if you have a pain, you label that pain, then to investigate it is like hurt. Like what? When you feel pain? Pain, yeah. Like right now I have a pain in my chest. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so I say pain. And then um, that label goes to hurting. And then the investigating is for the duration of the hurt, or you just keep breathing and then experiencing the hurting, and then slowly fade off away from it by going to your breathing. Well, you could label all the way along the process. Um, you you uh, surprised me a little when you said from pain to hurting. Now that can be a that's a distinction I wouldn't make, but that doesn't mean it's not a very legitimate distinction for you to make. If there's a difference between that, I, I guess I would think of pain as more a sharp, acute experience, and hurting as a more achy experience. And maybe that's what you mean by it. I don't know. Well, well, the reason why I said hurt from pain is the experience that the duration of it hurts to experience. Pain is pain, but the duration is hurting. And then from the duration of hurting, it subsides to the breath. Now, it subsides to the breath. It subsides to the breath. If I'm focused on the breath, then I don't experience the hurting so much or the duration of it. I see what you mean. It kind of just fades out into whatever. And then, like, if a motorcycle drives by, 
and I say, okay, I hear a motorcycle, I hear a tire, I hear motion, I hear, and then after that, it like fades off into my breathing again. Now, when Is that you, a good way of labeling? Now, when you say you hear motion, oh, I hear a motorcycle going by. If I hear a motorcycle going by, I say I hear a motorcycle going by. I hear wheels turning on the road. I hear rumbling, and then that fades into like the, the breathing now, again. Now that's fine and a good start, fine? but by bringing in the motorcycle, we're really going beyond what we're hearing. We are extrapolating from our experience that when we hear that sound, we usually see a motorcycle on a video or in person or whatever. And so that's something that if we can, we want to avoid going into the further conceptualization. It's just the hearing. It's just the sound. And of course, we probably know what it is, a lot of sounds. But to go into that is to really go away from where we want to stay, which is just the momentarily bare experience of hearing. Is that making sense? And the same with motion. Motion is a, you're not hearing motion. You might be hearing friction. You might be hearing uh, the sound on the pavement, the wheels spinning or something like that. But um, you're not really hearing the motion itself. Okay, good. Let's go on with this and let's just try this for one minute. And let's see how many... uh, if somebody goes to the bathroom, that's all the better because we'll hear some, some floor sounds. So I'm going to start, right? Just hearing. Let's not try to get into sensations or anything. Just hearing. Okay, let's start. Okay, let's stop. How many heard more than five sounds? Great. How many heard more than ten? More than than fifteen? Oh, you're late. (laughs) More than fifteen? Wow, great. Being sensitive. More than twenty? Mm-hmm. 21? 20 is our top. Well, my goodness, that's a lot. I mean, more than five, I regard as quite something. Um, I don't want to go into a discussion right now. We might later just about maybe distinctions you had trouble making or whatever you, you know, heard that was a new thing to you. One thing that I, when I started listening uh, intensely, I uh, always heard there's this background noise. And at first I thought I had, there's a certain diagnosis you can get for that, that people have where it's really uh, imposing on your life. This, uh, I can't remember the popular name for it, but I learned quickly. What is it? Yes, I didn't have that. I just have what anybody can hear if they, if they tune in. Um, now, after all that, uh, Stephen doesn't really call us out to focus on that kind of, of um, noting. That's preparatory and certainly something good to do, and it's the kind of noting I've done all my practice life. But he's really concerned about feelings and states of mind. Uh, things like sadness 
in anticipation, boredom, um, anger, desire, disappointment, confusion, and not so much hearing and uh, touching and seeing, which is another one that we're constantly involved in. Um, and furthermore, he really wants us to focus more on uncomfortable feelings and states of, uh, states of mind. He says, we have all been conditioned to withdraw our awareness from the unpleasant, break that imprinting, allow awareness to go where it may never have been before. That's really at the heart of what he calls preparing for death. Or in, in another way, he talks about, um, well, I'm forgetting right now. It'll be later in my notes, though, I hope. Um, he's got a great term and an analogy. He calls it the gymnasium of life. And he says, if we go out and try to start focusing on the mind states around death, or childhood trauma, or sexual abuse, we won't have the strength to really get into that. It's like going into the gym and trying to lift a 300-pound weight. We not only won't be able to lift it, but we're liable to really hurt ourselves trying. And the same with trying to get into these really, really heavy states of consciousness, states of mind, or feelings. We really need to build up our strength and stamina with lesser weights. The states of mind that happen every day, minor annoyances, disappointments, small offenses, uh, impatience in traffic. He says, we miss our daily opportunity to increase our stamina by overlooking those little workouts life constantly makes available. The little fears and doubts, the slight anger, the five and ten pound weights of an ordinary day that we do our best to ignore, burying that which might set us free. At home, I have a habit, unfortunately, of ramming my knee when I get up into the drawers in my desk. And for years, I've had the habit of uh, moaning or uttering a mild swear word, uh, rubbing my knee hard and walking into the other room or walking somewhere to get rid of it, to get rid of any discomfort I have. Well, that's reacting to pain. And what he'd call for is responding. And that is hit the hit the um, drawer, softening as much as I can, very hard in that circumstance, to soften, to relax, but as much as I can, note what's going on. Sting, radiation, movement, pain going down the leg, up the leg. Staying with that, he's talking about being part, a very important part of my life, and conditioning me for the really heavyweight work around the real states, uh, around death and other really heavy states of things in my past. If I'm a veteran, maybe war memories that I really keep out of my consciousness, that the divine Stephen feels we really need to get into to complete our life. He has an interesting notion of, uh, of healing. Um, he said, when we first began this work, like most of those who came to us, we thought that healing was something for the body. But after accompanying several hundred toward death and seeing the course of illness change for many, we recognize that healing goes on at many levels. His definition of healing has to do with this business of completing our life, which was the concept I couldn't think of a minute ago. Um, That's what going into these heavy states, heavy negative states, heavy, I shouldn't say negative states, these heavy unpleasant states, um, is all about. 
He talks about completing our life by getting into the things that we've always, either through unconsciousness or conscious effort, kept out of our awareness. He said, if there's a single definition of healing, it is is to enter with mercy and awareness those pains, both mental and physical, from which we have withdrawn awareness. Nothing so prepares us completely for death as entering those aspects of our lives that remain unlived. So that's another way, he says, you, in, you get into really into life by get, letting your awareness go into these places that are very unpleasant and that we usually manage successfully to keep out of our consciousness. And again, war memories, childhood traumas, sexual abuse kind of situations. So for Stephen, healing is not somewhere we are going, as we usually think of healing, but it's a discovery of where we already are right now, which is what we are, for the most part, often unconscious of. He also says, whatever limits the entrance of awareness limits healing. And he talks about completing one's birth before one's life is over by investigating the inner places where awareness has not gone. Just a couple of short stories to just illustrate the way that his term of healing has been used by some of his patients, some of the people he's worked with. There was a man that had cancer and worked with Stephen a very short period of time and that said, this isn't right for me. This is not tough enough. I've got to get rid of this and I need what he called hard medicine. So he left and he went and got traditional treatment of chemo, radiation and so on, which of course... Stephen would not be in any way against. And he did go into remission, but his life was lousy. I mean, he, he anticipated that when he got rid of his cancer, life was going to be wonderful, and it was for several months. But the third month, he came back to Stephen, simply saying, I want to engage in what you call healing. And he did that process and said soon after starting, and this is a quote that Stephen puts in his book for this man. Now that my body has cured, is cured, maybe I can stay alive long enough to get healed. So you can see the way he's using the term. Stephen also spoke of a woman named Robin, who um, was not far from death when she asked um, Stephen to form a healing circle. He got a number of well-known healers, and they came into her room and did a laying on of hands for several hours. And seven days later, Robin had new tumors. She was actively dying, and she knew it. But what she said to Stephen was, quote, it's a quote from her that he puts in one of his books, the healing worked. I have some feelings about this. The, the, the healing worked. My heart has never felt more open. And it seems the disease is coming to completion. So she obviously did not look at her healing in terms of fewer tumors. She got more. But the fact that her heart was open. Okay, let me summarize what I've said here, and if we've got time, I might share one other writer's notions that I really love, and we'll go into discussion. Um, so according to Stephen, the best preparation for death is wholeheartedly opening to life, the life he's talking about, mostly inside. So life includes much more than the signs sights and sounds and activities we ordinarily refer to. To begin opening to life, we need to train ourselves to be open to and to investigate our constantly changing feelings and states of mind. Healing most often involves directing our awareness into the unpleasant 
states of mind and feelings we ordinarily don't allow awareness of. And the, one of the primary tools in our effort to heal is our willingness to note and investigate our discomforts rather than withdrawing our attention or being distracted away from them. That's just in summary what uh, he has to say, and his many books have a lot more to say. Uh, Before I give this one other thing from a writer that I really like uh, also, um, I just wanted to say that there is going to be at the uh, Dharma Book Club here at IMC a monthly meeting. They're going to devote a year to uh, Stephen's book, One Year to Live, How to Live This Year as If It Were Your Last. There are classes around the country starting in this, and uh, uh, Jeff Hilton, psychotherapist here in the community with a lot of experience leading uh, groups also, is going to facilitate it, and they're going to meet on basically, mostly on the first Friday of each month from 5 to 7.30. The first meeting, however, is not going to be on the first Friday of the month. It's July 11th, and then it'll go through next June. So I highly recommend that I know Jeff, and he's really into this. And I'm going to participate myself. I think it would be a great, great experience. Well, I thought if I had just a moment more, and it looks like I do, I wanted to say one other thing. It's not related to what I've been talking about. Uh, it comes from the writings of uh, Carlos Castaneda. Now, some of you undoubtedly have heard of Carlos Castaneda, and many of you probably haven't. He was a graduate student at UCLA back in about 1960 and for through the 60s. He went to northern Mexico and um, came back to UCLA to write his doctoral dissertation. And uh, what he wrote about a lot was Don Juan and the teachings of Don Juan. Don Juan, he said, was a man that he met in, uh, in Mexico while he was there a sorcerer, a teacher in the local culture. And um, he uh, wrote sufficiently to have published many books coming from that. I've got eight of them I counted tonight on my bookshelf at home, and I know I don't have all of them. But back in the 70s, uh, 80s, uh, he was quite, uh, quite appreciated. Now, there's always been, there has been, since he wrote, a controversy. Some say that this was a very skillful writer, Castaneda. And Don Juan probably didn't exist, or if he did, there were many teachers, and he simply collapsed them into this one person he called Don Juan. Others say, who know him well, no, there was Don Juan. Some claim to have met Don Juan. Other people, not just Castaneda. I don't want to get into the controversy, but certainly his writings and the teachings of Don Juan, have been very well respected by a wide-ranging group of people in the United States and many other countries where his books have been translated. One of the things that I've always been intrigued about, and I went back and found it in one of his books this last week, is about death being our eternal companion. In other words, living as if death is an arm's length away, always and the consequences that that brings to us. And I'll just quote from one of his books. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death, from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Because, and I've certainly found this in the group of people with life-threatening illness, and I found it in my own life when I had a life-threatening situation a couple of years ago. When you're suddenly confronted with death as not not just what you know will eventually happen, but something that could be much more imminent, your life takes on, for many people, it certainly did for me, a whole new set of priorities. Some things that weren't important before become very important, and some things that you're giving a lot of attention to drop away. So having death in your life does that. 
He also says, death is the only wise advisor we have. Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. So again, a reprioritization can take place very easily when we really keep death in mind. Now, also have quotes from the Dalai Lama and others. They have their use of contemplating death. But I've always thought this is a, a marvelous teaching, whether it's out of Castaneda's head or whether there was a person <clears throat> saying, uh, named Don Juan that, uh, that taught it to him. So I want to stop, and we've got 20 minutes left or so. And uh, you're certainly welcome to ask me questions about what I've said, and I'll do my best to answer or tell you I don't know. But what I'd really like to encourage you to do is to share some of your own experiences around death or the deaths of people that have meant something to you. Um, so I'll give that invitation and I'll let you uh, speak as you will. Yeah. Do we want to get a... Hi, this is actually just a, a technical question from a beginner. Um, I have back injury and so sitting aggravates that. I'm not supposed to sit. So I understand. Sorry, I understand that you know that there's sitting meditation and there's walking meditation. But if you have a to stand or lie down, is there a preference, or does that not really matter as long as you're able to focus on your breathing? And you're asking between standing and lying down, right? Is that because just you don't valid? sit? Is it well, just as valid as sitting? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And if you're going to lie down, I learned a trick from one of our teachers here, Andrea, uh, who has a very bad back. She practices in places like Burma and so on. So she's a real, really into the practice. She said, if you're lying down, I, at the risk of disengaging this, I'm not going to lie down. But lie down, put a hand up. And that will help you not because there's a great tendency to go to sleep if you're lying down. But if you put your hand up, that starts to fall. You'll be aware of it and you can, one, come out of sleep and or that tendency and put it back. But walking meditation also, all of these are equally valid. The whole point is simply to be absolutely aware of what's going on in the moment. And you can do that in either any of those three well, two postures and one walking. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Well, my own experience, and that's why I like Carlos Castaneda's comments on death to your loved one. He personifies death. And that allows my mind to make it much more real. Clearly, uh, it's not like I have some notion I will die tonight, but I can definitely, by thinking of of death, even in this personified way, I might well reprioritize the importance of an argument I'm in, of a somebody cuts me off in traffic. The reaction is to be angry, get uh, grip the wheel more uh, closely. But if I, if I have the practice, and it can be a practice, to think of my death, almost in this personified way, everything gets reprioritized right there. I relax. Why is this so important that I got cut off in the face of my death? Which I am, in fact, glad to realize I'm not right up against. So, yeah, it's, it might be harder or easier for some to do that, but I, I haven't found that one really hard. My problem is I, not, I don't often enough think of death. And I sure wish I had sometimes after I've been in a situation where I felt I had acted very petty. As he says, a lot of pettiness 
is going to be dropped when we when our death is really our advisor and part of our life. And I've known people who really make it part of their life. And it's had a very salutary effect on them, they say. They're not necessarily Buddhists. I don't know, does that help at all? Or Yeah, it's... Um, Could I interrupt for just one second and say one more thought to uh, Carl? Um, And this might not be a practice that's that's even possible for some people. I mean, there's all of these practices that each of us finds either easier or harder. And I think I've always been advised to go for the ones that are easier, that that are more um, congruent with the way you are and this might be one for you that doesn't work and there's no problem with that excuse me go ahead I am very fortunate that I have a close relationship with my mom who she'll be 89 in a couple of months and I didn't have the time for it when I was working full time and um I see her quite often now, and it's introduced a lot of uh, death into my life because at her age, she experiences death of friends, uh, the person that lives next door to her or whatever. I get calls often. And so she's teaching me a great deal to see how she's coping with it. Uh, she also had the gift of being able to uh, work closely with people who were dying, and and people would hire her to take care of their relatives because family a lot of families can't be with their relatives when they're dying, and she would be with that person up to the very last couple of days, mm. and then the relatives would come in. And sort of suddenly they could deal with the rituals, but they couldn't deal with being close to someone dying. It was maybe just too painful. Anyway, it's a real gift to me. I don't. I feel like I'm learning and I'm in new territory. Um, and so I think staying um, connected to our elders is probably the best, best, best way that we practice. Mm-hmm. That's happening around us every day and and by watching them go through the experience of their losses I, I feel like I'm learning a great deal mm-hmm. thank you yeah so I had actually emailed you probably a couple of months ago because my uncle was really ill and I wanted to have a way to be able to help him. Um, Not really having anyone really seriously die close to me, I didn't really know how. So in me sending him Stephen Levine's Who Dies, I actually picked it up and started reading it. Mm. And it was really interesting for me because for some reason I thought, here's my ticket to going deeper in Buddhism. So I started trying to meditate about bones and skulls. And I thought that that was a way to help me understand you know, that this thing that's always beside me and is going to get me to you know, be here in the moment. Well, that didn't quite work for me. Um, but I really wanted to thank you. Something you said right at the end um, of your talk about um, death being right next to you. And whenever you're in a situation, if you're mindful and you're aware of what's going on, you can just turn to this person and say, does this really matter? For some reason, that was really powerful for me because I've spent this whole day, maybe you can call it brooding, hmm. over the fact that I've been sleepy. And I don't, I've just been hitting myself over the head saying, why am I sleeping? You shouldn't be sleeping. You shouldn't hmm. be sleeping. And then when you said that, I just turned to this person and said, does this really matter? And it just fell away. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. wow, that must be pretty powerful to use that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, thank you. I'm glad that worked for you. 
Yeah, I think you're originally embarking on um, meditating on bones and skulls or whatever. I mean, that's definitely done in other cultures, not our culture. Uh, I think probably most of you know that uh, in certain cultures, and Buddhists will go to uh, graveyards and, in fact, even watch bodies decompose to really get a sense of death. I mean, in this country, we're polar opposites of that. We do pretty much everything to keep death at arm's length in terms of our awareness. So, um, yeah, you were doing a very traditional thing, but it's very hard to do in our culture. We're not, we're not brought up to for that. Hi, Barbara. When you have to concentrate on the pain, I find it, um, um, I feel sad about it because I'm suffering from cancer. And so when I start thinking about it, I get depressed and unhappy about it when I start concentrating on what's going on in my body and if I'm conscious about it. So the way to get over it is I try and do something I like and just distract my attention. So, um, you know, if you know that it's, something that's going to happen, it's bad that's going to happen, if I start concentrating on the pain, I mean, according to you, we have to note the pain and be with it and be, so I try and distract myself constantly so that I don't think about it and have, not feel sad about it. So is that wrong? <laughs> no, it certainly isn't wrong. Uh, all I compare it is what, um, what Stephen says. And I certainly don't hold this out as, as my teaching or that I'm even capable of doing it any better than anybody else here. But his recommendation, I think, would be uh, the best thing to do in terms of spiritual practice is to really focus on the moment, on the pain. And when you do that, you find that there's a lot more there than simply pain. There's a whole lot of things we've talked about earlier of, of radiating, moving, shapes. Um, and to do that, uh, and some will even experience the pain subsiding as one gets into the pain. That's no guarantee, I don't think, with that kind of thing. It certainly is written about. But he would certainly recommend that with pain that we don't distract ourselves away from it. That, that's what he would call taking your awareness away from an important part of your life so that it's not really fully embracing life. On the other hand, this is very, very difficult work to, because certainly everything in us, I think not just our conditioning, but our genetic loading is to avoid pain. And if we can't avoid it physically, then certainly let's get our mind off it. By, if it's a minor pain, get the TV on or uh, at least go for a walk in a nice neighborhood, um, which hopefully is nature. Um, but that's not his recommendation. He says we're missing opportunities to really open up to our life when we do that, or in his terms, complete our life. That's not a satisfactory answer, I'm sure, but that's what I think he would say much more artfully than that. Is it on? Okay. Um, my sister, uh, she had breast cancer a few years ago. And she went in and had uh, some of the therapy done and uh, they gave her about four or five years. And about a little over 50 to 60 percent of the women that had gone through treatment have so far passed away. And a little less than half of the other women are somewhat in remission and, and hers came back. And so she had some more removed. And then um, she had some tests done and um, the, the cancer had spread throughout her whole body and into her bones. And that's the good news. Because it takes longer for it to... Uh, to do what it does uh, as far as cancer goes and if it goes into like, organs or muscles or anything else it's, it's a lot faster it goes through the body faster and, and disease takes hold so she's in treatment right now and I'm, I'm going to be leaving down there to see her and 
possibly see what goes on with her, uh, you know, in the forthcoming months, and, and, and possibly move down there on a permanent basis mm. just to, to be with her. She's 51. She's how old? 51. 51. Wow. Yeah, and, you know, when we go through life, uh, we assume that there's always going to be next semester or the next quarter or the next time, you know. We really don't have a guarantee on what we have in life. And really, every moment is so precious and should be cherished, you know. So I wake up in the morning and I just give thanks just to be able to see and hear and smell and taste and feel and walk and talk and read and write and all the simple things that are so, you know, mm-hmm. taken for granted that everybody thinks there's going to be tomorrow. You know, and it happened to my cousin when she was 36. She had a a leukemia died two weeks later um, after being diagnosed. So, you know, I always think, you know, there's, you know, there's going to be more time. So my brother's flying out. He lives back east, and, and you know, I thought, well, this is a good time to go down there. And so, uh, the one thing that I've gotten from seeing death in, in, in my family and in other people is that, you know, it is so easy to think, you know, there's, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And, and there's that love and fear factor, you know, that goes through my brain, you know, about loving and fearing and the mixture of all those emotions between love and fear. And, um, you know, I won't be able to assimilate to the economy down there, which is okay, you know, but, uh, because of the situation and everything. But uh, it's just being there with her. I think that's really important and being with the family. And I think it's going to be helpful for me because uh, a couple of years ago I could do. I was really angry at the doctors, and that didn't help any. It just got me depressed. So, um, yeah, looking facing, looking to the left, and looking at at death. You know, as you're walking, is a, a moment-to-moment thing sometimes. And uh, I like your analogy with the uh, Carlos Castaneda, teachings of Don Juan, or whatever it was, whichever book. I read that in high school, and. Uh, found really kind of a, you know, different. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to wind up, but um, one thing, I having one association as you go down this here, remember what a gift giving your listening attention to a person is. Just listening. There's nothing you need to say usually if a person's in that kind of situation, but just listening to them say whatever they want to say, or sitting with them if they don't want to say anything. But giving them your attention is a wonderful, wonderful gift that most of us tend to overlook. So I just that was my association when you were talking, for what it's worth. Thank you very much for coming, and um, hope to see some of you in the uh, thing Jeff Hilton's doing with uh, Stephen Levine's um, One Year to Live.